Turn with me to Exodus chapter 8. Exodus chapter 8. As we continue to work through the book of Exodus, we're halfway through the plagues. One of the more well-known parts of the Bible, thanks to Charlton Heston and, uh, was it Pixar or Disney? Prince of Egypt. And there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with getting a little bit of Bible, however much Hollywood may have altered it, to at least give us a connection with the, the wider culture. So at least familiar with the concepts. But ultimately, we have to go back to the Word to see what really happened. <coughs> so we're going to cover the three middle plagues, half of chapter 8 and chapter 9. So we'll start in Exodus chapter 8 and verse 20. So if you were with us last week, we covered the first three plagues. And Pharaoh has not let up, and so the plagues continue. So far, the Nile has turned to blood. Um, frogs invaded everywhere, and lice or mosquitoes attacked everybody. Now we come to chapter 8, verse 20. And the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water. Then say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants on your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. And in that day I will set apart the land of Goshen in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. I will make a difference between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall be. And the Lord did so. Thick swarms of flies came into the houses of Pharaoh, into his servants' houses, and into all the land of Egypt. The land was corrupted because of the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God in the land. And Moses said, It is not right to do so, for we would be sacrificing the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. If we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes, then will they not stone us? We will go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he will command us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you should not go very far away. Intercede for me. Then Moses said, Indeed, I am going out from you, and I will entreat the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart tomorrow from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. But let Pharaoh not deal deceitfully anymore in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses, and he removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also. Neither would he let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and tell him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord be on your cattle in the field, on the horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, on the oxen, and on the sheep, a very severe pestilence. And the Lord will make a difference between the livestock of the Israel and the livestock of Egypt. So nothing shall die of all that belongs to the children of Israel. Then the Lord appointed a set time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. So the Lord did this thing on the next day. And all the livestock of the Egypt died. But the livestock of the children of Israel, not one died. Then Pharaoh sent, and indeed, not even one of the livestock of the Israelites was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh became hard, and he did not let the people go. So the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, 
Take for yourselves handfuls of ashes from the furnace and let Moses scatter it towards the enemies in the sight of Pharaoh. And it will become fine dust in all the land of Egypt and it will cause boils that break out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. Then they took ashes from the furnace and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses scattered them toward heaven and they caused boils that break out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils were on the magicians and on all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. If this story is not true, it has no purpose. There's no inspiration here. There's no moral lesson. There's no wisdom for living. It really should be ignored. But if it is true... Completely the opposite. We believe it is true, and so we believe it is relevant today because it actually happened. So when we look at this, just here's a note on, when you're reading the Bible, you should look for patterns. There are, we know of ten plagues, right? Well, there's actually nine plagues plus one. The last being the, the Passover where the, the firstborn is killed. But the nine before that are, are lumped together. And the Bible actually divides them up into three categories or three parts. And the beginning of the part, begin, look at verse 20. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water. If you look back to chapter 7 and verse 15, it says, Go to Pharaoh in the morning when he comes out to the water, and you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him. That's the first plague. Then there's three. And then it starts over in 20. Rise up early in the morning and go out to meet him. And then again in, in chapter 9 and verse 13 it says, Then the Lord says to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh. The writer's giving you clues that you should take these in clumps of three. And there's a pattern. The pattern starts with Moses goes out to him, meets him, declares a warning, brings a plague. The second plague in the series, there's just a warning. There's just there's not a warning. It's just God says, if you don't do this, I'm bringing it. Then the third plague is very short, and there's no message. It just does it. That happens three times. So when you're reading the Bible and you're studying it, notice these patterns. So that's why we divide into three, so we're doing three weeks, three plagues each, because that's how the Bible's set up. Uh, the Bible's not haphazard. There's a format to it. God intends us, intends for us to, uh, use our reason and our logic. So we look at this, we see three plagues. Flies, a plague or a livestock disease, and then boils on people. What's the point of all this? All of this is judgment on, on Egypt. The context is God is judging Egypt, and he's bringing these plagues on Egypt to judge them. And the overriding question, we talked about this last week, the overriding question of the whole book of Exodus is the one Pharaoh asked in chapter 5. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? He wasn't saying God didn't exist. Sometimes you think, he's like, oh, God doesn't exist, I shouldn't obey something that doesn't exist. Pharaoh may have believed that the Lord exist, existed. The question was, why should I obey him? And the plagues are the answer. The book of Exodus is the answer. That question hasn't changed today. Who is God that I should obey him? Why should I obey God and not me? Why should I obey God and not society, culture? Why? And so the plagues give us the answer to that. And the answer is, which is obvious, no one else can do these things. God says, I'm going to prove to you ten times over that no one else can do these things except for me. Therefore, you should obey me. So let's look at it. 
there's sort of in these three plagues, there's a relationship that God has to us, a standing that he has to people. And so we're going to look at God walking the land, God sitting down his rivals, and God standing for his people. So it's God's ways of relating to us. So the first one is God is walking the land. Look in verse eight, chapter 8, verse 22. It says, In that day, God says, I will set apart the land of Goshen, that's where the, Egyptians, or the Israelites lived, that no swarms of flies shall be there, in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. You see, before he said, I'm going to do these things so you know that I'm the Lord, that I have power. Now he's saying that you may know that I'm the Lord in the midst of the land. See, the plagues are getting worse. Remember the first plague? Bad water. They dug wells. Second plague, frogs. Third plague, mosquitoes. Now what's happening? Flies. Have you ever been attacked by a swarm of flies? The ones that bite? The ones that fly in your mouth? That's what's happening here. Life shuts down, doesn't it? Until you get rid of the flies, you can't do much. Then what happens? Then all the livestock are killed. Now, livestock in the ancient world would be equivalent to combining the transportation system in America with the stock market. Imagine the stock market getting wiped out and all the roads getting wiped out. What would that do to America? It would cripple us. When the livestock got wiped out, that's what happened. Then finally, the third plague here is their own bodies were corrupted. You see how the plagues are getting worse? God's ramping it up. And he says, you, I'm going to make a difference between my people. I'm going to make a difference between these regions of the land so that I, you know that I'm here. I'm in the land. I'm not outside. Sometimes we think of God in heaven looking down on earth. This passage is teaching us, no, God's in the land. He's in the midst of the land. And if you notice one more thing about these three, three uh, plagues, there's no staff used. Remember, remember Aaron's staff or Moses' staff? He would wave it over the, the water and turn to blood. He would hit the dust and the gnats would come out. You notice here, no mention of it. He didn't use a staff for any three of these. What happened? Look at verse, chapter 9, verse 3. It says, Behold, the hand of the Lord will be on your cattle to field. God comes down himself and does it. He's making a point. He's saying, Moses doesn't have this power. Let me show you. I don't need the staff right now. I'm going to come down personally and do it. I am in the midst of the land. Supernatural control over the border. See, if you read about this in the secular society, they're going to say this was all natural. Natural flooding caused sediment and microorganisms in the River Nile that turned it red, which drove the frogs out. The frogs uh, died with and, and created anthrax. Anthrax poisoned the livestock, which then poisoned people on their skin. This is all typical of anthrax. Uh, and the flies came from the dead bodies. Sounds reasonable, doesn't it? And it may have happened that way. Here's the thing. What's not natural is that one place having a ton of flies and the place right next to it not having any. That's supernatural. So however the flies came to be, God stood between the flies and the Israelites. Literally. All the cattle died in one county. In the next county, none of them died. That's not how anthrax works, if you're wondering. It doesn't respect county lines or state lines. Uh, the boils. If anthrax would happen, anthrax hits your skin, boils arise. It's an epidemic. It, tr- it spreads. Not here. Here it was stopped at the border because God was standing between it. So it's supernatural control. What is God doing here? God is walking in Egypt killing things. God is walking the land. He's saying, I'm not God in heaven looking down on you. I'm not invading Egypt. I'm in Egypt. 
I'm walking your roads. I'm going up between your houses. God himself, not Moses, God. God walks the land judging people. Now, we don't like to think of God that way, do we? That's why we read the Bible. We read the Bible so that God can tell us who he actually is, not who we would like him to be. This is saying, know that I am the Lord in the midst of the hand. I come down with my own hand, kill your cattle. With my own hand, afflict your body. I personally walk the land judging people for their sins. That's harsh. That's scary. It should be scary. Uh, Johnny Cash has a song about this. If you're a Johnny Cash fan, if you're not a Johnny Cash fan, we'll talk about that later. Uh, it has a song called When the Man Comes Around. It says there's a man going around taking names. He decides who to free and who to blame. Everybody won't be treated all the same. There'll be a golden ladder reaching down when the man comes around. The hairs on your arm will stand up at the terror in each sip and in each sup. Will you partake of that last offered cup or disappear into the potter's ground when the man comes around? God's coming around. That story is saying God's walking around killing things. Why? Because things are wicked. The land is evil. The people are evil. And God is just. And so God comes down and says, I won't put up with this anymore. So that you know who I am. I am a just, powerful, holy God who personally involves himself in a battle against evil. This was a warning. The Egyptians should have been quaking in their boots that God had come down to them to judge them. If this story is true, God hasn't changed. God still walks this earth. He still, the Bible says his eyes go to and fro over the earth. He knows the hearts of men. The holy, just God sees everything. He's in the closed door meetings. He's in the back alleys. He's in your heart, judging, watching. It's a terrible thing. You see, salvation and Christ and the cross don't mean anything until you know who God is. There's no peace until you're afraid. See, peace comes after you're upset. So we have to know who God is. The Bible is as much a warning as it is anything. It's a heads up that everyone's just living their lives out. The Egyptians are just having fun, having slaves, living it out. God comes and says, stop, pay attention. Things are not okay. That's happening right now, too. I'm here to tell you things are not okay. The holy, just God is on this earth, watching, judging. And look how he deals with people who oppose him. God sitting down his rivals. That's the best way I could put it. Look at verse uh, 8. So the Lord said to Moses, the final plague, it's really short, it's sort of decisive in the, in the series of three. Throw the dust up. I will spread it out throughout the land. In verse 10, they took the ashes from, from the furnace and stood before Pharaoh. That's a language of opposing. They stood before him in a way of opposing him, right? They looked him in the eye, and then they threw the ashes in the air and says, God will judge you. And Moses scattered, and they called boiled. And look in verse 11. And the magicians could not stand before Moses. You see the parallel here? Moses stood before Pharaoh. The magicians could not stand before Moses. You remember the last time the magicians were even mentioned? It was two, three plagues ago. 
when they tried to duplicate the mosquitoes and they couldn't. It says, then the magician said to Pharaoh, they could not do it. This is the finger of God. Then they're not mentioned. Do you know why? Because they couldn't do any of the next thing. The flies that came, the plague, the boils, they couldn't do any of that. They weren't even involved. They've basically been pushed aside. But God brings them back out in the story to say, you remember the magicians? Let me show you how bad they are, how I've defeated them. They can't even stand before my prophet. He's showing how they've been humiliated. Just so you know, the powers of this world, as real as they may be, the superstition, the hexes, the voodoo magic, that could be real. I think it's real in this passage. Where is it now? Look at this literally. The magic people with the powers are laying in their bed. Can't even come out to meet God's prophet. Can't even get up. They can't even stand up. What's God saying here? He's saying, you want to oppose me? I'll put you on your back. You won't even get to pretend to oppose me. I'll make it so that no one thinks that you have any power. This is a warning to us. There are a lot of powerful things in this world, things that can kill you, things that can change your life, things that can crush you. God's saying, I don't care about those things. Compared to me, they don't even get to come out. If I want to stop them, they won't even come out of their room. That's what God is saying here. He's sitting down his rivals. And there's no mention of the magicians after this. They basically cease to exist in the Bible. Because at this point, who cares about them? After seeing they can't even come out of their rooms, I couldn't care less about the magicians. I want to hear about the person who put them in there. I want to hear about God. Because this same God exists. The magicians are all dead. They're gone, aren't they? God's still here. The same God that put them on their backs is here today. And if you get nothing out of this message, at least you know a little bit more about God. And if you know God, you should worship him. But look what he does with Pharaoh. See, Pharaoh is set up in this whole story as the, op- is the anti-God. He's, in, in a sense, sort of a precursor to the antichrist. It's not Pharaoh versus Moses. It's God versus Pharaoh. And so in this story, God warns Pharaoh, shows him plagues, shows him miracles. And what does Pharaoh do? Up until this last play that we just read, Pharaoh hardens his heart. He makes his heart strong. He's stubborn. He strengthens his will to do what he wants to do, which is keep this economic benefit of slaves. But God says, you're not in charge. You don't even get to control your own heart. God's making a point here. He's going so far overboard that there's no question who's in charge. So plagues 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, Pharaoh hardens his heart. But in, in plague 6, you look at verse chapter 9, verse 12, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. It's not in Pharaoh's hands anymore. God's in charge. Now we may say, well, that's not fair. What if he had changed? God says, I'm in charge. If you can't handle that, you're wrong. See, a lot of us who maybe don't see this view of providence or sovereignty or what we call Calvinist, God doesn't care what we think about his own character. This is what the Bible says. It says the Lord hardened his heart. I'm not exactly sure what it means, but it's true. And it says that God works in ways that are far above our own and controls everything. Everything works out the way he wants it to, including the will of man. 
For six plagues, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And he may have changed at this point. But God says, no, you don't get to do that. You don't get to decide when things get better. I decide. Now, it could be that uh, this is showing a way that man changes. You build habits into your life until they take over. You do the wrong thing long enough to build a habit, you're no longer in control. We've seen that with addiction. What is addiction except that you're doing something almost against your will? But it is your will. You're choosing it. I think that's similar to what's happening here. Pharaoh had hardened his heart until God says, this is how things work in my world. I will harden it for you. He's going to give Pharaoh exactly what Pharaoh wants, whether Pharaoh wants it or not. You see, Pharaoh, up to this point, had opposed God. He wanted to oppose God. So God says, okay, I won't let you back down. You want to oppose me? I'll help you. I'll, I'll strengthen your heart so that you won't break under the pressure. Doesn't that make things worse? Absolutely it does. It absolutely makes things worse for Pharaoh. It, it's so bad that what God does to him here that Pharaoh dies for it. That's called justice. Pharaoh sinned, and God didn't let him repent and gave Pharaoh what he deserved. That's fearful, isn't it? God may just give you what you want. If you're not a believer and you don't really want to follow God, God may strengthen you in that so that he can punish you for your sins. That's a terrible thing to behold. But that's what's happening here. Pharaoh was judged by God. Pharaoh resisted God and God judged him. And the way he did it was giving Pharaoh what he wanted. Hardening Pharaoh's heart that he, so that he could not change, he could not let the people go because he didn't want to. You see, Pharaoh is never portrayed here as someone who was doing something against his will. God does not say to Pharaoh, I know you want to change, but I'm not going to let you. He doesn't say that. At no point is Pharaoh doing anything against his own will. Through the whole story, Pharaoh did exactly what he wanted to do. And God's hand was in it all. That's a warning too. Are you resisting God? The only reason you're still resisting God is because God's letting you. God's giving you grace. He's giving you time. You don't know when that time's up. For Pharaoh was right here. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And it was over after that. Is that you? Are you resisting? God may give you what you want. And as we see in the story of Pharaoh, it's the end. The story of Exodus is God is in control and God is just. Egypt deserved to be punished. They deserved it. We don't like, some of us don't like the story of Pharaoh because we're like, oh, God's controlling people against their will or, you know, he, he should have given chances. We don't understand who God is. Mottner says, we have a problem with the plague simply because we step back from the truth of the wrath of God against sin and the judgment of God upon sinners. We would prefer the bliss of a kingdom of God without moral absolutes, presided over by a God without wrath, and entered through a Christ without a cross. It's too much on us at that point, because we have to admit we're sinners, and we should be judged. That's what should happen. So we're like, I don't know if everybody deserves what they're getting. They do deserve it, and we deserve it. This is confronting us and saying, we are Pharaoh, resisting God. Because look at the next point. So we see God walking the land, God sitting down as rivals, but God standing for his people. So he says, in that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there. 
in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. I will make a difference between my people and your people. God is standing between Egypt and Israel. But let's think about Israel. So the Israel is protected here, right? They're protected by God against the plagues. Egypt's punished, and we're all like, that's right. God's people winning, the bad people losing. Why did Egypt get punished? It wasn't really because of slavery. It was because they wouldn't listen. They wouldn't listen to God. Moses comes to them. Egypt says, no, we don't want it. So God punishes them. But why does he protect Israel? Because you know the last time you heard from Israel was in chapter 5, verse 21, where they cursed Moses. That was the last time you heard from the people of Israel. They cursed Moses. They did the same thing that that Pharaoh did. They said, Moses, get out of here. We don't want what you have. Now, they said, may God judge you. They were pretending that they were on God's side against Moses. But what, what this shows us is there is no difference between God and his prophet. The prophet carries the word of God. And if that wasn't a lesson for us, I don't know what it is. We say, no, we follow God, but we're not going to accept his word or some parts of it. You don't get to make a choice. Israel rejected God when they rejected Moses, just like Egypt did. There's no difference in the story between the rejection of Pharaoh and the rejection of Israel. They both cursed Moses. Why is there a difference? Why did God protect one who rejected his prophet and punish another who rejected his prophet? One reason. He made a promise to. He made a covenant. He said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I will save your people from being destroyed. Fast forward 400 years, his people reject him. The promise doesn't change. It was still, I will take the children of Israel, the children of Jacob, and bring them to where I promised they would. And if they're terrible people, like they are, I'll still do it. Because Israel doesn't get better from here. They get worse. Once they get free, once God saves them, what do they do? They worship false idols. They try to kill Moses. They rebel. In fact, a whole generation had to be wiped out. They were so bad. That's who Israel is. Terrible people. And yet God says, I will make a difference between my people and your people. Why? Because God keeps his promises. I think I said it last week. God treats us, treats his people based on his covenant, not on their character. He says, I've made a promise. I'll keep my promise, not based on your character, but on my covenant. So Israel rejects it, but he's protected by a promise. Let's apply that to today. It's it's an easy application. Is the story true? Then God's still judging people. God's still going to punish sin. The only thing that's going to protect you from God and from his wrath is God. Isn't that what the story is telling you? That no one else can stand up to God? When God wants to judge you, he will. So who's going to stop God's judgment? Only God himself. The only person that can hold back the hand of God is God himself. And he did so because he made a covenant with Israel. But since God is still walking this land, who's going to protect us from his wrath now? We need a new covenant, don't we? You see, the old covenant here, what was the covenant? What was the promise made? I will take the bloodline of Israel and make them survive. A lot of these Israelites died, didn't they? It wasn't an individual promise. It was a nation, national promise. We don't get that promise. And if we did, it's not really good enough, is it? Okay, so our ancestors are going to get land. Our descendants are going to get land. We need something better because God is judging us on our spiritual condition, on our eternal condition. And so we have what's called the new covenant, a new promise. 
God is still the same. God still walks the land, judging, destroying evil. But he's made a new promise to us. And that promise is that he will stand between us and him. And so when his wrath falls on sin, he'll get between it. That's who Christ is. Christ is the one who stands between Egypt and Israel. When the, when the disease starts to spread towards Israel, God stands between them. And when the wrath of God comes to his people, Christ stands between it and absorbs it so that we on the other side don't get any penalty. There's no punishment for sin anymore if you're in the covenant, if God is standing between you and his wrath. Exodus is still true because sin is still real and God is still just. But there's a new covenant for us. Philippians chapter 2 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, or who being God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. And who is God except for one who judges and punishes sin, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of man, and being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself. What is that? That's God coming down to this earth and walking in the midst of it. But what's the purpose? It's not like here where he destroyed things. It says he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Christ came down and took on man, took on flesh, so that he could stand between us and God. He could take the plagues. He could take the death on himself. The old covenant said, be an Israelite and your people will survive. The new covenant says, repent of your sins and believe in Christ and you will survive forever. Christ stands between us and God's wrath. See, if you don't believe God is wrathful, then Christ means nothing. The cross means nothing. It's only because God punishes sin that the cross means something. You've seen uh, Guardians of the Galaxy? First movie. There's a character called Groot. Very noble character, sort of like never does anything wrong, just a nice guy. And he always says, I am Groot. That's all he ever says, I am Groot. And sort of everyone loves him, and he's just he's the good guy in the whole thing. Everyone else is sort of criminals and bad. But at the end of the movie, they're, they're in a spaceship, and it's about to crash, and they're all about to die. And Groot, he's like this tree character. They're all like falling down. It's sort of the end of the world, the end of their life. Groot starts to grow out his branches and starts to wrap around all the people and creates this bubble with his branches. And the character says, stop, when we crash, you're going to die. You're going to take the impact. And Groot said, he always says, I am Groot. Like, that's all he has. So the whole movie, I am Groot, I am Groot. At this point, he says, we are Groot. And you know what happens? The spaceship crashes, and Groot dies. He dies. But everybody that he had protected lived. That's the gospel. Christ said, you deserve to crash and die because you're wicked. But Christ wraps himself around us, and when the wrath of God hits us, Christ absorbs it. We become like Christ. We are Christ. It says Christ who is our life. Christ died. There's no happy ending here to where Christ makes it through. No, he dies. When the wrath of God falls on man, there's no escape. It's total death. And so Christ does that for us. The plagues and this is showing us what Christ is going to do. It's showing us who God is and it's showing us what we need. At this point, you can't do anything to stop God's wrath. 
it's too late for you. You've already been bad. You've already been wicked. You've already rejected God. You need someone to fix that for you. And Christ says, if you will admit that you're terrible, I'll do everything for you. First, you have to say, I can't do anything for myself. You can't make up for the past. Pharaoh couldn't say, well, wait, I want to go back 400 years and take everybody out of slavery. Too late. It's too late at this point. You need someone to fix it, someone to absorb the wrath that's falling from heaven. And that's what Christ does. And all he requires of us is that we admit that we need it and we trust him to do it. There's not a better deal that you could ever even conceive of. It's almost too good to be true. It's too good to be true that God himself would absorb his own wrath so that we sinners could live in peace. And yet that's what he does. And that's why you should accept Christ, because we deserve to die, but Christ died for us. If you're here and you're resisting Christ, be warned. See the beauty of what Christ did for us. Repent, turn from your sin, and put all your weight on him. He can handle it. You're not too bad for Jesus. When he died, he died once for all. He bore all our sins, and he paid for them. And he offers that to you. Let's pray.